Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Open your Bibles to John chapter 20. We have two more sermons in the book of John after today. So we're going to finish John in two weeks, and I'm going to leave you hanging on what we're going to do next. John chapter 20. I was born in Kansas City, Missouri. Both my parents are from Missouri. My family's from Missouri. And Missouri has a famous nickname. What is Missouri called? The... Show me state, okay? It's on their bumper stickers. It's on their license plates. The show me state. You've got to show me. Now, you might not know how the state got its nickname. Back in the late 1800s, there was a Missouri congressman. His name was Willard Vandiver. And he went to a naval banquet in Philadelphia in 1899. And these big-time politicians were going on and on and on and on, and they were waxing eloquent, and they were you know, blowing smoke. And finally, um, Van Diver gets up and says, Listen, I'm from a state that we sell uh, corn, we raise corn, we raise cotton, we raise cattle. We're not impressed with your big speeches. We're not impressed with your eloquence. He said, I'm from Missouri. You've got to show me. That's how it's got its nickname, the show me state. It's the slogan for skeptics everywhere. Maybe you're a person like that. Maybe you are a Missourian at heart. I'm I'm somewhat of a Missourian at heart. You've got to show me before I'm actually going to believe it. I've got to see the proof. Skeptics. You know, there's been a lot of famous skeptics in history. A lot of people that question the Bible. A lot of people that question Jesus. Some were outright atheists. Some of the famous ones were French author Voltaire. Voltaire said this, quote, Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. Tell us what you really think about that, Voltaire. Napoleon Bonaparte, the French emperor, said, As for myself, I do not believe that such a person as Jesus Christ ever existed, but as the people are inclined to superstition, it's proper not to oppose them. Thomas Edison, the American inventor, said this, I have never seen the slightest scientific proof of the religious idea of heaven and hell, a future life for individuals, or of a personal God. How about Bill Gates, founder of Microsoft? In a Time magazine interview, he said this, quote, Just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. And I'm sure some of you think that sometimes. There's a whole lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning besides going to church. Jack Nicholson, famous actor, Lakers fan, quote, says this, I resist all established beliefs. My religion basically is to be immediate, to live in the now. It's an old cliche, I know, but it's mine. History's been filled with skeptics. Those that have that Missouri attitude, you've got to show me. And some skeptics, some of those have been open 
They've been open to truth. You've talked to a person about your faith. You've talked to a person about Christianity, and they're somewhat open. They're willing to give you a hearing. They're listening to you. They're not opposing you. They're they're not hostile. They're listening to you. On the other hand, there are those skeptics that don't want to hear what you have to say. They're hostile. They suppress the truth that's right in front of them, and they are arrogant, and they want proof on their own terms. They want God to operate on their agenda. Paul says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There are some people that are just, they hold the truth down. They suppress the truth. They don't want to come face to face with the truth. They turn things upside down, the, Isaiah says. Isaiah 29.16, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? You know, there's some people that turn things around. They, they want to stand in judgment over God. They want to put God on trial. They, they, they demand evidence from God, and they turn things upside down. So today, we are introduced to who has historically been called doubting Thomas. Now, Doubting Thomas, that's somewhat of a soft nickname. It wasn't just that he was a skeptic and had a few doubts. What we were going to find out this morning was that Thomas dug in his heels in arrogance and cynicism and pessimism, and he ardently needed to see proof. I'm sure if we were to follow Thomas around Jerusalem, on the back of his donkey cart would have the bumper sticker, Show me. The show me state. Thomas was from Missouri. You've got to show it. Show me, the, show me the proof. So let's pick up in the Bible, John chapter 20, verse 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. And see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's the big idea. Here's the central theme, the big takeaway from this passage of Scripture. Believing in Jesus as your Lord and your God results in the blessing of eternal life. I want you to think about two questions that should be going through your mind this morning. What does it mean to confess Jesus as your Lord 
and your God. Your Lord and your God. What does that mean to have Jesus as your Lord and your God? Now, we're going to look at Thomas. There's a transformation that goes on in the life of of Thomas. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to explore Thomas from two angles. His, His relationship to Jesus before and his relationship to Jesus after. Two, two major sh- scenes this morning and how they operate. So here's the first. The first thing we see about Thomas. As a stubborn unbeliever, Thomas demands proof from Jesus. He's a stubborn unbeliever. He's going to demand proof from Jesus. Now, remember last week, those of you that were here, half of you, the disciples were scared. They were behind locked doors. And Jesus miraculously appeared to them. And what did Jesus say? Peace be with you. They were overwhelmed with joy to see the risen Lord. This was Sunday evening of his resurrection. It was Sunday night. It was the first time Jesus had appeared to the 12, actually 11, because by this time Judas has probably gone and committed suicide. Now, what do we know about Thomas before this event? Well, Thomas had witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. So Thomas had been an eyewitness to a resurrection. Thomas had seen Lazarus dead in the tomb for four days and raised again. He saw it with his own eyes. So he had an experience of seeing somebody raised from the dead. Experientially, he had seen it. And back in John chapter 14, Jesus taught Thomas and the others that he would rise again. If you remember back in John 14, 1 through 6, Jesus says to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, that's heaven, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to Thomas, the famous words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas, you know where I'm going. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to go back to heaven. And then I'm going to come back and take you to myself so that you're going to have a home there in heaven as well. So Thomas, on two occasions, one occasion, he'd seen with his very own eyes someone raised from the dead and Lazarus. And he'd heard from Jesus about the resurrection, had been taught about this. So the issue with Thomas is that he did not have lack of information both experientially that he'd seen with his own eyes and informationally that he'd been taught by Jesus about resurrection. Now, the Bible here says Thomas was not with them. Verse 24, Thomas was not with them when Jesus came the first time. We don't know where Thomas was. The Bible doesn't tell us why he wasn't there. It just he wasn't there. Now, have you ever had that experience where you missed out on something and everybody else went on this trip or had a great experience and you got left out and, you, and everybody was talking about it? 
I'll tell you the most devastating experiences for a sixth, sixth grade boy. Devastating, okay? Back in my early days, in, in sixth grade, the youth group, every summer, would go to Glorieta, New Mexico, where our youth go, okay? They'd go to youth camp. They'd go to Fuge, okay? And back then... There was no such thing really as middle school. Everything was still high, or junior high and high school. So here's where the rules to attend camp. You had to have completed seventh grade in order to go to youth camp. Well, I had only completed sixth grade. So the entire youth group got to go to Glorieta, New Mexico, and I had to stay home with my brother and do nothing that summer. And so they went off to camp. And you know what happens at camp? They have the great stories, they have the great experiences, they learn the motions to the songs, they have the great stories on the bus, you have the the, the little romances that happen, all the fun stuff. And so they come back, and guess what happens? They all talk about everything. They talk about, you remember that story on the bus? You remember what the pastor said? You remember blah, 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 blah? And you're sitting there and you're thinking, this is just one cruel joke that I've been left out of as a sixth grader. And you're so sunk, you're so frustrated, you feel so left out because everybody else had this wonderful experience, but you were left out. Have you ever felt like that before? Everybody else had this great experience, but you're left out. That's what happened to Thomas. He got left out of this great experience. Jesus showed up to the other disciples and they were overjoyed. And it's interesting, if you look at the original text here in verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Literally in the original text, the disciples kept telling him over and over and over again, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. He came and he showed up among us. He said, peace be with you. He just showed up. We've seen the Lord. And Thomas is thinking, all right already. I've heard enough. What do you mean he showed up to you? Thomas is cynical. He's arrogant. He's pessimistic. He's sick and tired of hearing these other guys tell him over and over again, we've seen the Lord. What does Thomas say? Look at the end of verse 25. I am from Missouri. You've got to show me. Unless I see his hands and I see the marks in his hands, the nails... And if, I, and if I see his side, I've got to see it. I've got to touch it. I've got to demand proof. And if I don't see it with my own eyes, if I don't touch it with my own hands, notice what he says there. I will never believe. I will never believe. You know, in the original text, the Greek text, that's in what we call a double negative. Okay? For those of you from the South, I ain't never going to believe. Ain't never, no, not ever going to believe. That's the way you can translate it in your southern translation. I ain't never, no, never, no, no, never going to believe. That's basically what the Greek says there. It's not because he didn't have enough information. He had seen Lazarus be raised with his own eyes. He had heard Jesus teach on numerous occasions about the resurrection. No, this is brash, foolish, stubborn unbelief. You've got to show me. And Jesus, you've got to operate on my timetable. You've got to bend to my demands. Unless Jesus does what I want him to do, I'm never going to believe. Have you ever met somebody like that? They're only going to believe if Jesus is like a genie in a bottle and operates on their timetable. I'll only believe in Jesus 
if he gets me my job back that I got unjustly fired from. And then a week goes by and they don't get their job back. And what do they say? See, I told you, you can't believe in Jesus because he didn't give me my job back. I will do so-and-so if Jesus does so-and-so. You put Jesus on trial. You make Jesus meet your demands. You're not going to believe unless Jesus does things the way you want him to do it. And Thomas here is being stubborn. It's not enough for Thomas to hear the testimony of his disciples. Okay, he heard their testimony. We've seen the Lord. It's not enough for him to remember back, oh, you know what, this does make sense because I remember Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, so there is such a thing as resurrection. I've seen it with my own eyes. And oh, by the way, on three occasions, Jesus taught me that he was going to raise from the dead. It's not that he doesn't have lack of information. This is not an inf- issue of information. This is a, a heart information, or a heart issue. Thomas is digging in his heels. He's being stubborn, and he's saying, I've got to have proof. And, you know, many of you here may have the historical facts about Jesus. You, you may be like, like Thomas. You got the information. It's not for lack of information. If I were to ask you, uh, tell me some information that you know about Jesus. Well, okay, I know he was born in Bethlehem. I know that he was the son of a carpenter. I know he did a lot of miracles. I know he did a lot of teaching. Um, I know that he cast out demons. As a matter of fact, I know that he died on the cross and he rose again. I, I know a lot of these facts about Jesus. And that's great. But I may shock you to let you know that even the demons believe this, and that's not enough to save you. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. It's not just knowing the facts. Thomas had the facts. It was a hard issue for him to suppress the truth that he knew and to dig in his heels and say, I'm never going to believe unless I see it with my own eyes. As a stubborn unbeliever, Thomas demands proof from Jesus. He demands proof. Okay, let's see the pivot. Let's see the turn. Here's the second thing we see about Thomas. As a submissive believer, Thomas declares faith in Jesus. Okay, Thomas goes from being a stubborn unbeliever to a submissive believer. And he goes from demanding proof in Jesus to declaring faith in Jesus. Okay, so he keeps hearing this. He keeps hearing his disciple friends saying, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. And and Thomas has to wait an entire week. He's cynical. He's thinking things over. I need to demand proof. I'll never believe. Verse 26, eight days later. Okay, the next Sunday. The very next Sunday, and the scene is exactly the way it was when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. But Thomas was not there. Where were they? Okay, they're locked behind doors. Okay, that's what happened the first time. Jesus came and stood among them. That happened the first time without Thomas. Jesus said, peace be with you. And so, and when verse 26 happens... Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. What's Thomas thinking? This is strange. This is exactly the way they told me it happened. Didn't Jesus appear? And didn't Jesus say, Peace be with you? And he showed up behind locked doors. This is exactly the way they said it happened. And now it's happening now. I guess it must be true. This is exactly the way they said it. 
But Jesus is not a genie in a bottle to perform on command. Verse 27, everything that Jesus tells Thomas are in commands in the original language. So Thomas is going to demand from Jesus, and Jesus is going to say, you're not going to demand from me, I'm going to command you. I'm going to tell you what to do. Okay, so look at verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, so this is a command, put your finger here, Thomas. What did Thomas demand? Unless I see his hands, unless I see his side, unless I put my hands there, I'll never believe. Jesus says, okay, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. And then Jesus says something very interesting at the end of verse 27. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, here's the way it reads in the original language. Stop being an unbeliever and start being a believer. That's really the way it's worded in the original language. It's it's pretty strong. It's pretty emphatic. Jesus is basically saying, Thomas, you've got to stop the unbelief. You've got to stop the arrogance. You've got to stop the cynicism. You've got to stop the pessimism. You've got to stop the rebellion. You've got to stop being an unbeliever and start believing now. So Jesus' command to Thomas. Now what's shocking here is that Jesus doesn't have to bend to Thomas's wishes. Jesus is under no obligation to actually even say anything to Thomas. But what does Jesus do? In an act of love, in an act of condescension, Jesus actually gives in to the wishes that Thomas had. What did Thomas want to see? I want to see the hands. I want to see the feet. I want to see the side. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus says, hey, look, touch me. Feel me. I'm going to give you proof positive, not because I have to or because I owe it to you, but because I love you. It's an act of condescension. And then verse 28 is really the crescendo or the apex or the climax of the entire book of John. We're getting here to the the highest point in the book of John, and it is the confession from Thomas as this submissive believer. He was an arrogant unbeliever, and now he becomes a submissive believer. What does he say in verse 28? Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Now, before we explain what these two terms mean, I want you to notice something very important. Notice how personal it is. Notice the personal confession of faith by Thomas. He doesn't say, the Lord, the God. What does he say? My Lord, my God. This is a personal, passionate confession from Thomas. This is not an um, abstract, cold distant recitation of theology from a textbook. You're my Lord, you're my God, I recite the creed with no passion. This is a man who has been transformed, and this is a personal confession of faith. My Lord, my God. Okay, so two things that he confesses about Jesus, the resurrected Christ. So first of all, let's just ask the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be your Lord? My Lord. Your Lord. What does it mean for Jesus to be your personal Lord? Well, it means that Jesus is absolutely sovereign over your life. 
It means that he has every right, because he is the exalted Christ, to tell you what to believe and to tell you how to live. No questions asked. He demands ultimate allegiance from you in daily submission to him as Lord. You know, a lot of people I've met over the years love Jesus as their Savior. I really love Jesus as my Savior. He forgives my sins. He makes me whole again. He gives me a home in heaven. I really like that Jesus. And I would say, amen, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you're my Savior. But when you bring up Jesus as your Lord, a lot of people get uncomfortable. They bristle at that. Because what it means is not only does Jesus save you from your sins, but Jesus demands of you daily dying to yourself to take up your cross and to follow him. That you're no longer in charge of your life, that you no longer call the shots in your life, that you're no longer the leader of your life. Jesus is now the leader, the Lord, the king, the master of your life. He is Savior and Lord. You can't divide those two offices of Jesus. James Boyce has said this, any attempt to divorce Christ as Savior from Christ as Lord perverts the gospel. For anyone who believes in a Savior who is not also Lord is not believing in the true Christ. It's a false gospel. If you just take Jesus as your Savior, but don't take him as your Lord, you're getting half of Jesus. You're getting the Savior part, which is great, but you're not getting the Lordship part, which is his right to tell you how to live, to be the Lord, the King of your life. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said to young preachers and and how they should preach to people. Quote Spurgeon, Do you imagine that the gospel is magnified or God glorified by going to people of the world and telling them that, quote, they may be saved at this moment by simply accepting Christ as their personal Savior while they are wedded to their idols and their hearts are still in love with sin. If I do so, I tell them a lie, pervert the gospel, insult Christ, and turn the grace of God into an excuse to continue sinning. If you're going to take Jesus as your Savior, you have no choice but to take him as your Lord, which means that, yes, he saves you from your sins, but also he is the Lord God. He is the King. He's the ruler. He's your master. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 14, 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that's in Corinth, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Philippians 2, 9-11, Therefore God has highly exalted Him, that's Jesus, and bestowed upon Him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I've heard people over the years say, you know, you just need to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Just make Jesus the Lord of your life. And I say, "Uh uh-uh. You do not make Jesus the Lord of your life. He already is Lord, whether you do anything with him or not. He's the sovereign king. You don't make him Lord. He already is Lord. Now, you submit to him as Lord. 
you confess him as Lord, but you don't make Jesus anything. That, that puts you in control. He already is the sovereign Lord, whether you acknowledge him or not, because one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess him as Lord. So we submit to Jesus as our Lord. We bow to him. So this confession by Thomas, my Lord, it's a confession of submission, acknowledging that Jesus is king. He's ruler. He's master. He's the leader of your life. My Lord and my God. So second, what does it mean to confess Jesus as your God? My Lord and my God. Now, Thomas knew that Jesus was a man. He had seen Jesus eat. He had seen Jesus sleep. He had seen Jesus get tired. He had seen Jesus sweat. So Thomas knew that Jesus was a man. But yet, what does Thomas profess right to Jesus' face? My Lord and my God. And notice that Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus doesn't say to Thomas, now Thomas, you're going too far. Only God the Father is God. I, I'm just an exalted man. I'm a superhuman. I can do a few miracles, but don't ever call me God. Oh, there's only one God. I'm not God. I'm just, yeah, I'm a created being. Did Jesus ever say that? No, he accepted the worship by Thomas in calling him God, which means that Jesus is absolute deity. He is God in the flesh. Colossians 2.9, For in him, that's Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The Gospel of John begins with Jesus as God. The Gospel of John ends with Jesus as God. This is a bookend. Now, we're going to look at the epilogue in the next couple of weeks, but this is the confession of faith that started at the very beginning. How does the, the Gospel of John start? John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is and has always been God. John 5.18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John 14.9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is God. Now, this is radical for a good Jew like Thomas. Because for a good Jewish young man like Thomas, he would have grown up reciting what we call the Shema. The Shema is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. The famous confession of faith by the, by the Israelites, by the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, he's one. What does Thomas say to Jesus? My Lord and my God. What's he saying? That the same worship that a good Jew would give to Yahweh, who is the Lord, God, his whole heart, soul, mind, strength, Jesus is in fact the same God. He shares that godness, if you will, with the God of the ages. So for a Jewish person, this would have been radical to confess Jesus as my Lord and God. Because that was only a title reserved for God the Father. Now for John's original audience, when the Gospel of John was written, they were run under Roman occupation. 
And there was a Roman emperor named Domitian. Domitian was the Roman emperor's name. And here's what Domitian required of everybody that lived in the Roman Empire. Once a year, you would have to go take a pinch of incense, go to a pagan altar, and stand before the community leaders, put the pinch of incense on the altar, and you had to confess to Domitian, Domitian, you are my Lord and my God. You had to confess that to the Roman emperor. So all the citizens of the world were professing their allegiance to the emperor as my Lord and my God. So what does Thomas say to Jesus? My Lord and my God, which means that Jesus will have no equals. Jesus will have no rivals. There's no middle ground with Jesus. When you confess Jesus as your Lord and your God, you are confessing faith in him to be the absolute sovereign leader of your life, the Lord of your life, the King of your life, the one who died on the cross, rose again, and will not share his glory with anyone. Now, this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Thomas. Thomas and the disciples were able to do what? They could touch Jesus' scars. They could see with their own eyes the, the, the piercing in his side. And that was a special privilege given only to a very small number of people. But what about us today? How should you and I respond to the risen Christ? Look at verse 29. Jesus pronounces a blessing. Jesus said to him, Have you, seen, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed, okay, this is a, a blessing, a beatitude. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed, which includes who? Us. We have a blessing because we've not seen Jesus, but we've believed in what we've not seen. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. There were probably people who saw the resurrected Christ after he rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that he appeared to over 500 people. So for those 40 days that Jesus appeared to people, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I can imagine there were probably people who saw the resurrected Christ but did not believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They had the temporary blessing of seeing the resurrected Christ, but they will spend eternity in hell because they haven't trusted him as their Lord and their God. Now think about the privilege for us. We have not seen the resurrected Christ with our own eyes. We've not been able to feel the nail scars or, the, or, the, or any of the, the things that Jesus experienced in the flesh. But we are blessed because we've believed in what we've not seen. How does faith come? Does faith come by seeing or faith come by hearing? Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We come to faith by the testimony of the disciples given to us in the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11, 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things, what? Not Seen. Now, Peter captures this wonderfully in 1 Peter chapter 1, 8-9. Listen to what Peter writes. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We don't see Jesus, but we love him and we believe in him. And we're waiting for him. And Jesus says, blessed. 
Blessed are you who have not seen with your eyes, but have believed the word preached. Now, verse 31 gives the purpose of the book. So um, I'm going to just give you a little bit of, a, of, of, of encouragement and challenge here. If you're a student that's writing theme papers, okay, high school, college, don't put your thesis at the end of your paper. Okay, put it at the beginning and then prove your thesis. John does just the opposite. He puts it at the end as opposed to putting it at the beginning. He puts the purpose, he puts the thesis, he puts the reason why he's writing the book. He waits till he gets to the very end. Look at verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. What's the purpose? Why is the gospel of John written? These are written so that you may what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What was Thomas's confession? I want you to look with your eyes there. Look in verse 28. My Lord and my God. That was, that was Thomas's confession. What does John say you must believe? Just put your eyes down. Keep your eyes in verse 28. Look down in verse 31. Look at the parallel. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. My Lord, my God. Christ, Son of God. Almost parallel statements. Jesus as Christ simply means he's the Lord. He's the prophesied Old Testament Messiah. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king. He is the Lord. John 1, 41. Andrew goes to his brother Simon and said, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the, the Lord. He's the, he's the one that has been prophesied. So confessing Jesus as your Lord is almost the same as confessing Jesus as the Christ. He's the king. He's the master. He's the leader. He's the ruler. He's my Lord. He's my Christ. Hey, what else did Thomas confess? My God. Down there in verse 31, the Son of God. Now, confessing Jesus as my God and confessing Jesus as Son of God, those are not in conflict. Is Jesus the Son of God? Yes. Is Jesus God? Yes. Well, which one is it? Yes. Is he the Son of God or is he God? Yes, he's God in the flesh. Son of God is more of a title of who Jesus is. It's a royal title. When they used the word son of somebody, it meant that they were in a position of authority. Son of God simply means Jesus is the one who's the king. He's the one in authority. Again, in John 1, 49, Nathanael said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Thomas said, my, my Lord, my God. <clears throat> my Lord, my God. John says, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is my Lord, my Christ. He's my God. He's my Son of God. And Jesus pronounces a blessing. What does he say there? Back in verse 29, blessed are those who've not seen and yet believe. So it begs a question. Okay, Jesus pronounces a blessing upon us. We haven't seen Jesus, but we believe. So here's the question. What, in fact, is the blessing that Jesus promises for belief in him? Well, we don't have to be a rocket science to figure it out because John gives us the answer. Verse 31, these things are written. Okay, John, why did you write the gospel? So that you may believe. Okay, that's been all through the gospel of John, believing that Jesus is who? He's the Christ, 
my Lord, my God, he's Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, okay, what's the blessing? What happens when you believe? You may have life in his name. The blessing is life in his name. And that that has a lot of shades of meaning. Not just abundant, powerful, joyful life in the here and now, but the promise of eternal life forever with Jesus in heaven. John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Life in his name. Children of God. And you all know John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So here's the ultimate question for you this morning. Have you placed all of your trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and your God? Do you have life in His name? Do you have the assurance that you will go to heaven when you die. Have you repented of your sins? Have you fallen on your face before Jesus as your Lord and your God? Don't be like Thomas. If you're a skeptic here this morning and you're not quite sure and, you, and you're trying to figure out this Christianity thing, I'm so glad you're here and we're glad you're here and we, we love for you to be here and we, we wouldn't want you to be anywhere else because we want to be able to answer questions. But let me just give you a warning. You've been given some truth this morning about who Jesus is. And you can walk away one of two ways. You can walk away like Thomas and say, I will never believe. You can be an an arrogant unbeliever who's going to demand signs from Jesus. Or you can walk away today a submissive believer who says, My Lord and my God, I confess faith in Jesus. So there may be some of you here this morning that have never made that confession of faith. You have never trusted Jesus Christ alone to be your personal Lord and Savior. You may say, you know what? He's my friend's God. He's my friend's Lord. He's my parent's God. He's my parent's Lord. But he's not my Lord and my God because I've never personally trusted in Jesus. Now, for those of you that have done that, for those of you that have trusted in Jesus, let me just remind you, are you living in daily obedience and submission to Jesus as your Lord and God, to where He really is Lord. That you're following Him, that you're obeying Him, that you're seeking His face daily, that you're taking up your cross daily, that you're dying to yourself, that you're following Jesus. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day rose again. He ascended into heaven. He seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. You know the words to this. It's the Apostles' Creed. It's the powerful confession of faith that the church has had for the past 2,000 years. And it's one thing to recite a creed by memory, by rote. 
creeds, confessions. It's another thing to be like Thomas where you fall on your face and from the depths of your heart, you cry out with passion, Jesus is my Lord and he's my God. Is he your Lord and your God this morning? Only you can answer that. Please do not leave this place today without coming face to face with the resurrected Christ and making sure you know for certain that he's your Lord and your God. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as you think about these truths. That Jesus pronounced this blessing upon us. Lord, we, we, don't, we don't have the privilege of seeing you the way the disciples did. We, we would long for that. We would have wished we would have been there. But we are not. But Jesus, out of your own mouth, you pronounced a blessing upon us. Blessed are we that have not seen but still have believed. And the blessing we have is life in your name. And so, Jesus, thank you so much for giving us life in your name. Eternal life, abundant life, joyful life, a forgiven life, a cleansed life. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Lord, my prayer this morning is if there's anybody here, boy, girl, man, woman, old, young, that has never, ever confessed personally, my Lord, my God, today would be the day that they put all of their trust in you, Jesus, to be their Savior and their Lord. Help us to understand the lordship of of your sovereignty, Jesus, that you are the Lord. That you are the King. You call the shots. You lead the way. You direct our lives. We're not in charge, but you are. Help us to daily submit ourselves to your lordship. Thank you for the gospel of John. Thank you that this was written, that we may believe. And that by believing, we may have life in your name. Help us this week to go in the joy of that confession, to go in the strength of that, to know, Jesus, that we have been forgiven. Lord, help us to go tell others this week how they can have life in the name of Jesus. Would we leave this place encouraged? Would we leave this place strengthened? Because we serve a risen Savior who pronounced a blessing over us. Blessed are those who have not seen but yet have heard. Lord, we've heard and we believed and we have life in your name. And what a glorious blessing that is. We thank you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.